0: Greetings, this is Hellions. This is board operator Dan, the big bopper, coming at you from the belly of the beast. I'm going to be spinning some classic this is hell jams for you this morning because fearless leader Chuck has contracted the novel Corona-19 virus and is quarantining in accordance with Center of Disease Control guidelines. Chuck is modeling here the kind of pro-social behavior that we're all going to need to model to make the great next evolutionary leap to take care of one another and chart a mutually agreed upon and self-actualizing path on this, our great spaceship Earth. This morning, I'll be playing an interview from 2016 with Dr. Monique Morris. She'll be talking about the ways in which racism and sexism collide to criminalize black girls with a special focus on the ways in which they are failed by the American education system. That'll be good. Hope you're getting on well this morning. I just saw my family last night. We were gathered around a fire pit in Whiteheath, Illinois. A lot of pretty country out that way. There was a uh, fire, food, kids, and dogs flying everywhere. I assumed the role of a monster for the benefit of my nieces and nephew on the enormous outdoor trampoline. It was restorative in many ways. My brother related a story about a police officer he knew and was conducting some business with. He said the police officer was just furious about the impending end of cash bail in the state of Illinois. Hearing about this police officer's rage was a perfect reverse barometer for me. I allowed myself to become cautiously optimistic about the end of cash bail in Illinois, which is a huge hardship for the poor and denies them their completely non-metaphorical freedom. That is to say, it keeps them held in bondage. They're not allowed to leave. My brother related to me that the officer was vitriolic, Furious that he would no longer be able to arbitrarily detain the poor, hearing about this made my heart sore. My brother further further related that uh, the police officer was extremely flatulent, which seemed somehow appropriate. I had a sweet puppy in my lap for hours. That's a good scene down there in Whiteheath. We've got a question from hell this morning. Check this out. Question from hell. What should people... Be thanking you for this year. It's a striking reversal. It's a good one. If you've got an answer to this week's question from hell, this is uh, about time to get it in. We're, we're at Wednesday, and you've got a, about an hour to submit your question from hell. Head on over to Facebook.com slash ThisIsHellRadio. You can post it there. And at the end of today's show, I'll select a winner who will get their choice. Of This Is Hell merchandise. Okay, Chuck's out with the creeping crud, so let's use the power of radio to reverse the arrow of time and go way back to 2016. Chuck spoke then with Dr. Monique Morris, author and social justice scholar, and president of the National Black Women's Justice Institute. Dr. Morris talks with Chuck about the ways in which black girls are the subject of implicit biases that functionally deny them a full childhood and make them the subject of exclusionary discipline in the American education system, which is a setback that they really can't afford because they're at the intersection of many structural disadvantages. It's a good interview, and I'm pleased to share it with you this morning. This is
1: hell. Racism is an evil toxin that poisons our culture every day When you add sexism to that equation You get a lethal mix that is now pushing young black girls out of school And away from the education we all value so much Here to tell us what's happening to young black girls and why Social justice scholar Dr. Monique W. Morris Author of Push Out, The Criminalization of Black Girls in Schools Welcome to This is Hell, Monique
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: It's great to have you on our show. And let me just ask you a real general question at the beginning because we have been talking – it's just something that keeps – it was in the back of my head the entire time while I was reading your book, Push Out. Uh, we've been talking a lot about the lead poisoning of water in Flint and across the United States and we've been talking about the impact of toxic chemicals on people. And I couldn't help but think about that when I was reading in your book about the combination of racism and sexism. We think about chemicals that are put into the environment the way that they're tested by uh, the EPA is that is this chemical, if it exists in a vacuum, is it toxic? And then they put it into the environment and there are all sorts of other chemicals and it could make that chemical toxic. What do we miss in our understanding of sexism and racism, uh, the sexism and racism that is pointed at black girls today, when we don't consider that toxic mix of both those two horrible, horrible poisons that are in our culture, racism and sexism?
2: Yeah, I like the metaphor you're drawing. I think it's it's interesting when we think about the biases that are so much a part of our culture um, and the ways in which... We don't, in the same way that we don't necessarily smell, feel, or taste the toxins that uh, permeate um, and, and might have an effect on our consciousness. Uh, that same process uh, informs how we understand girls, particularly girls of color and Black girls uh, specifically. Um, the I talk in the book about a triple consciousness, and I talk about it in the context of our. Our own inability to grasp in many ways uh, the intersections between race, poverty and gender that render black girls disproportionately vulnerable to contact with the criminal legal system and to school pushout.
1: So you start your book, you write about the case of 14-year-old Dejaria Becton. You describe the summer 2015 video that went viral of Dejaria being thrown to the ground as well as physically and verbally assaulted by Corporal Eric Casebolt after she refused to leave her friends at the mercy of uh, this law enforcement officer in McKinney, te- Texas. The video shows, quote, Casebolt pushing Dejaria's face into the ground as she, a slight frame, barefoot, bikini-clad teenager who presented no physical threat or danger, screamed for someone to call her mother for help. The video showed Casebolt grinding his knee into her bare skin and restraining her by placing the full weight of his body onto hers. The incident was violent and reeked of sexual assault, overtones that were Mm -hmm. later deemed inappropriate, out of control, and inconsistent with the police department's policies, training, and articulated practices. What do we learn about the relationship between police and young black girls when we consider that, as you describe it, this reeked of sexual assault?
2: Yeah. We have to look at the legacy of slavery and segregated opportunity and how it's um, socialized by punishment and discipline. Um, it's something that I talk a bit about in the book, where we tend to see an appropriate response to the negative behaviors of what we perceive as bad behaviors of black girls um, with punishment and discipline. And um, there is a unique way in which we read the behaviors of black girls in the society or misread the behaviors of black girls in the society uh, in ways that are deemed aggressive or, or hypersexual um, or uh, sort of as ragdolls in many cases. That was the word that came to mind um, both in the, in the case that you just described and in the case involving the young woman who uh, was thrown across the room by the deputy sheriff in South Carolina in Spring Valley, where there was this treatment of black bodies, black girl bodies, um, as if they're disposable. And um, that is something that is rooted um, in our inability to understand uh, physical manifestations of trauma, representations based on behavior, and just how willing we are to explore uh, root causes when there is a problem uh, or when there is uh, a conflict with black girls. And so when I'm talking about school pushout, and when I'm talking about this contentious relationship often that we see um, when we do see it uh, in the public domain, because it's not often shared in the public domain, but when we do see it, um, we don't tend to interrogate the aspects of that uh, engagement or that relationship in a way that can really add meaning to how we come to understand and respond to the needs of black girls, how we... Um, structure, systems, and and interventions to respond when they are in trouble, um, and how we then seek to repair relationships, or if we even uh, want to seek to repair, or whether we feel just fine um, sort of casting them to the side, expelling them from school, or placing them in institutions.
1: And as I was saying, this was considered uh, deemed inconsistent with the police department's policies, training, and articulated practices. But, exactly. But what But what trumps that? If that's the case, then where do you think Casebolt learned to act this way? And he must have had some sort of reinforcement to learn to not only learn to act that way, but then to act that way. So how do you think, How? what trumps that kind of yeah. police department policy training and articulated policies?
2: You know, we talk about law enforcement um, as if they represent the entire criminal legal system. But the truth is that they are in many ways the the entry point, right, the first point of contact for the continuum, for the full criminal and juvenile legal system continuum. Um, when I talk about school push-out and I talk about these issues, uh, one of the things that I try to draw people's attention to is the pervasive nature of implicit bias. And when I talk about, you know, what constitutes the school-to-prison pipeline or school-to-confinement pathways, I include the policies and practices, but I also talk a lot about the prevailing consciousness that facilitates the criminalization. And this prevailing consciousness is the piece that's informed by the implicit bias that we're experiencing, that all of us are affected by. And implicit bias are, is really about the stereotypes and biases that live in our, in our minds you know, at an unconscious level or subconscious level um, that may be at odds with what we profess. So even when we say we're a society that, you know, treats everyone equally, or we say that we're engaging in practices that we would, you know, would constitute treating everyone the same, quote unquote, the decisions that we make, the way that we read people, all of that happens um, so quickly that it's not even happening with our intention in many cases. And it's that prevailing consciousness, that implicit bias that I think uh, misinforms how um, adults interact with children and typically how law enforcement and is interfacing with girls of color, black girls in particular, and how black girls are reading and understanding law enforcement. And there are you know, historical relationships that um, make the relationship problematic. And without our ability to really have conversations about how we structure interventions, how we respond to the needs of girls, how we engage law enforcement in conversations about how they engage with girls of color, how they are specifically reading the behaviors of black girls, we won't see any uh, change. And for that reason, my organization, the National Black Women's Justice Institute, has partnered with Georgetown Law Center on Poverty and Inequality to really examine the relationship between school resource officers and girls of color, because without, a, again, a, a, a real intentional uh, practice of exploring the training curriculum, exploring um, the and, and discussing with police officers and with law enforcement that's in schools um, the role of implicit bias and their own decision making and action um, we won't see, we'll see more of the same.
1: And as I was say- saying earlier, Monique is the co-founder and president of the National Black Women's Justice Institute, and you can find out more about that organization by going to NBWJI. Dot org. You were just talking about implicit bias and prevailing consciousness that drives so many of the reactions that you see that are deemed uh, racist. Uh, can those things be regulated away? Can you come up with a policy, a government policy, or rules, or some sort of enforcement that would make the implicit bias or prevailing consciousness goes away? Because it, it go away because it would seem like those things exist outside of regulations and rules.
2: They do exist outside of regulations and rules, but what we can do is implement policies, uh, practices that uh, help us control for these factors. So um, we know that schools, for example, that, have, that are led by educators um, who believe that punishment is the best way to correct negative student behavior are more likely to engage in uh, the use of exclusionary discipline, the suspensions, the expulsions, the corporal punishment. Um, schools that are led by um, school leaders who believe that there's a full continuum and range of responses that can help mitigate ne- negative behavior are the schools that have more restorative options, right, for, for kids. So what our policies can do, given the subjective nature of how we, again, read uh, and assess threats, how we come to understand, um, you know, the, the range the, or the appropriate responses to negative student behavior, those are things that legislation can help educators and systems Um, better understand. Um, Researchers are also developing decision-making tools to help control for um, the biases that we're all living with, that that all of us are affected by, um, to help us make decisions that, at the very least, can uh, force us to ask the critical questions that we don't necessarily ask if there aren't those structures in place. So, While policies and practices don't directly address the prevailing consciousness, what they can do is help us develop instruments and structures to check ourselves better and to build systems of accountability that require us to consider alternatives to the discipline that is is causing harm in too many communities and against black girls.
1: What do you say to someone who argues that it's not about race or age, but class? That is, uh, it's not about criminalizing black youth, but young men in poverty, the police are targeting people who are marginalized financially and economically, people who are desperate and are more likely to attempt to attain earnings from outside the legal system. It just happens (laughs) that far too often in the U.S., those who are on the fringes of the capitalist system are people of color. What do you say to someone that argues this isn't about black youth? Or even about black girls, but about the science and study of demographics and crime statistics.
2: I would say to look, take a deeper look at the statistics. <laughs> I think it's really <laughs> important to understand, um, and and this is a con- this is an idea that I fully embrace and that I I tried to engage in the book. Is number one, it is about class. It is also about race. It is also about gender. That. In this discussion about the unique vulnerabilities of black girls, I'm engaging what, you know, Professor Kim Crenshaw calls an intersectional lens, right? I'm not prioritizing the identity or one identity of a child over another in discussing the unique vulnerabilities. What I'm talking about are the compounded vulnerabilities. When you look at girls in poverty who are black, we start to see that there are multiple oppressions that they are experiencing that make them uniquely vulnerable to ideas about their own physical expression, their own uh, verbal expressions, their ways of walking and talking and learning and that is what I want to interrogate, not to get into necessarily a debate about whether it's class that is the master category or race that is the master category or gender that's the master category. It's the intersection between all of those issues and more. Sexual expression, ability, all of these things uh, play a role in how girls, black girls are impacted and being expelled and being uh, suspended and being arrested on campus and being referred to law enforcement. All of these play a role together. And so when we look at the statistics and we see the vulnerabilities, um, we see the increased rates of victimization among a particular group, not um, you know, only because they are living in poverty, but because they are experiencing the conditions of poverty through the vantage point and lens and experiences of girls who are also experiencing other forms of oppression. And so I think what we've got to do is have uh, more People who ask questions like that, I appreciate the question, um, because we've got to engage those kinds of questions to get us to a place where we're not in uh, a contest over what the, you know, specific oppression is that is greatest, but to really look at the intersections between these multiple forms of oppression that can move us toward understanding how we're going to uh, resolve these issues and how we're going to confront these oppressions and ultimately uh, eliminate them.
1: So in my introduction then, which I thought was... Uh, very clever. Uh, so uh, in that toxic mix, was I missing when I was saying that racism and sexism create a toxic mis- mix when I was, was I missing the classism component of it? And what happens if I miss the classism component of that toxic mix?
2: Yeah, I think we add to the toxins. It's really just, when we think about oppressions as toxins, and we think about what we breathe in and how it affects our consciousness and how it may change you know, how we present or how, we, how our skin is affected, all those things um, do play a role, and they're ultimately making us sicker. Um, ha- naming two of the oppressions is fine. Understanding that there are other forms of oppressions, other toxins that might be in the mix, depending on where we go and how we sort of move through life. Um, I do. I also, you know, think it, it was clever because of how we tend to think about how we ingest these ideas, right? And how um, we don't necessarily intentionally seek, or I really believe this, and I, and I say this in the book with respect to educators, is that I don't think people are intentionally trying to single out black girls and get them in trouble or read their behaviors as, as uh, somehow you know worse than their white or Asian counterparts. I think what's happening here is that the toxins have informed how we even understand black femininity to an extent that Um, how we understand what they wear and what they say is not always, you know, sort of universal. And there's a particular way in which we are reading of their behaviors discounts for the the ways in which it might play out in their behaviors. So we tend to um, fail to see the trauma and victimization of black girls and instead call them words like fast or, you know, consider them more sexual than their counterparts. Um, and, you know, the fact that we sort of read their behaviors is different. Um, let, let me give you an example. There, there uh, was a girl who I interviewed for the book who talked about uh, being 15 years old and having a much older boyfriend. Um, she called him her boyfriend. He was actually her pimp. And uh, she was saying, oh, well, black girls look older than other girls or black girls dress older you know, than other girls. And she had, you know, I, I was able to talk her through that, but. She had internalized this idea that because of the way in which she moves through life and the expectations that had been placed upon her, that quote unquote black girls are are looking older, right? And I, I paused and said, you know, by whose standards, right? Who has constructed this climate that tells you that the way you look is somehow presenting as older than you know other girls? Where is your childhood? Can we accept your, you know, girlhood? And explore and celebrate that instead of moving so quickly to present you as a miniature adult. And it's that kind of age compression, it's that kind of um, you know, internalized age oppression uh, and, and compression that, that takes place in the minds of, of, of our girls um, and our adults. Um, that render black girls uniquely vulnerable to contact with the criminal legal system and to uh, being uh, removed from classrooms when they're asking questions, right? If they have a particular tone, people automatically say, oh, she has an attitude or who you're talking to like that without exploring that whether she's really asking for clarification or whether she's engaging in an act of critical thinking um, rather than being seen as a person who is presenting an affront to authority. So these are the the pieces that I want to – that I hope, you know, by including in Push Out, our broader community can understand and begin to refine um, as we start to think through – opportunities to repair the relationship with school and to prevent school push-out.
1: So black girls are being punished for not being quote-unquote appropriate, but what's the barometer, what's the template for that appropriateness that we are applying to black girls that might not be appropriate?
2: Yeah, so, you know, there's a dominant, you know, I I think our dominant stereotypes about femininity and gender uh, identity are wrong across the board. (laughs) I think that more and more as we start to explore um, these concepts of gender identity, um, understanding that there's a continuum rather than a binary, which is really hard for people to kind of understand, right? That there are different ways of expressing gender, different ways of being a girl, different ways of being a boy, different ways of uh, being somewhere in between, if that's how you identify, Um, that there are, You know, ways in which we have constructed um, a very limited uh, and oppressive um, understanding of gender identity um, that is aligned mostly with white middle class norms, that when you deviate from these norms or you deviate from, uh, you know, these sort of uh, implicit um, and yet very visible constructs of what a girl is and what a boy is, right, that, um, that render you vulnerable to ridicule, render you vulnerable to um, uh, bias, and render you vulnerable to discrimination. And those are the things, you know, that, again, when you compound that with um, the other oppressions that exist in our society, the other toxins make uh, particular populations extraordinarily vulnerable. So when I talk about black girl expression in the book, and I'm talking about the ways in which um, they might present in a way that counters the norm of what we come to expect from the middle class norms, um, white middle class norms around how girls walk, how girls talk, how they, um, you know, sort of uphold a, a space of, of, you know, respect, <laughs> as we've come to define it to, to define it for them. Um, we don't really think about some of the cultural nuances around volume. We don't necessarily think about the cultural nuances around uh, hair or physical expressions or body types. and um, And so those are the things that I wanted to to with the girls. So the one thing I'll say about this this project and in this book is, you know, this is me talking, you know, having studied a lot of these issues um, in my academic life and career. But what was most jarring and what I find most useful in our understanding of, of and, and our own interrogation of how to understand um, these gender stereotypes is to hear directly from the girls. So when you talk to the girls, um, black girls, about these issues, they question how they are constantly perceived as sexual. Girls in Chicago, who I spoke with, um, made comments like it doesn't matter what my body really looks like. I'm a very, you know, small, thin, skinny girl, and people still see me as if I'm supposed to be some kind of bombshell, right? I'm supposed to be this kind of sexual creature that, uh, you know, is here for public consumption. And that is not me. That is not who I want to be. That is not what I understand myself to be. And, uh, and so I, I also don't want to necessarily wear a dress, right? I don't want to, Uh, be quiet. I don't want to be unseen. I want to be in a space where for my own act of survival, I can hold space and hold energy um, that is consistent with my own decision-making and also not be seen as someone who is going to immediately be be viewed as aggressive um, or combative. So, you know, I think uh, we still have a lot of work to do when it comes to undoing or deconstructing the ideas that have been, you know, rendered, Uh, normal in our communities about gender expression and identity, particularly when we're talking about it with the overlay of race, class, ability, and sexual identity.
1: We are speaking with social justice scholar Dr. Monique W. Morris. She is author of Push Out: The Criminalization of Black Girls in Schools. If you go to our website this is com, and you click on the title of the book it takes you directly to the publisher's page where you can purchase the book directly from them. How much do you Well, let me I'm going to I was going to say how much do you blame the media, but let me rephrase that. <laughs> what what role do you say do you think the media plays in that kind of uh, racist representation of black girls because I don't want I don't want to have a conversation about oh this is all the media's fault. I just want to know what yeah. role that plays within that mix.
2: Yeah, I think the media plays a role and I talk a little tiny bit about that um in the book. Um and I also think that uh what the media does most effectively is reinforce the negative stereotypes that inform how uh the public misunderstands black femininity. So, let me say that in in other terms. (laughs) I think that a lot of the ways in which black femininity is expressed on television, the way that it's shown through reality, quote unquote, TV shows, um, I don't think there's anything real (laughs) about those reality shows, but the way in which those narratives are constructed to, um, you know, present ideas about black femininity, the way um, music videos are constructed to present black femininity the rendering of the invisibility of black girl pain in some of the traditional news outlets, Um, all of these things play into how girls are coming to understand their own place and location in our conversations about their identities. Um, You know, where there are not strong interventions, uh, either in community or in homes, a lot of these girls look to those images as um, a depiction of what they should emulate. And uh, that's not uncommon for, you know, kids who are trying to figure out who they want to be. You know, I'm a kid of the 80s um, and 70s and certainly was informed by some of the you know, popular, uh, you know, expressions of femininity. And, um, and I think that's, that's normal. The thing is, we've got to have a greater diversity of representation for black girls that doesn't exist right now. And there are, you know, a host of media scholars who do talk a bit about how that's constructed and how we can begin to move beyond the stereotypes. But what we do understand and what was painfully clear to me in my interviews with the Girls for Pushout is that a lot of the ways in which particularly the hypersexualization aspect of black girls plays a role in how they come to understand um, their potential for earning. Um, and what they feel some of their options are if they are born into poverty and living in poverty. And so, you know, that to me is a critical place where where we can begin to construct new narratives. Um, For that reason, I'm really excited about programs like Global Girl Media or other media outlets that really allow for girls to begin to construct their own narratives and uh, write their own stories into the news. Um, so that they can understand the power that comes with constructing your own narrative and the healing potential that comes from engaging in that way uh, as well.
1: So is the collective identity then of black girls shaped if not perverted by stereotypes of others
2: oh uh, the the stereotypes definitely pervert not just their own understanding um, of themselves, but um, our understanding of them. I think the ways in which we deposit the identities of black femininity into these distinct chambers, um, you know the the you know hypersexualization, one which we've been talking about, um, the sapphire, which Bell Hooks talked about as a uh, the sassy black, angry woman, right, or or girl um, with an attitude, um, the the mammy as a historical reference to this domesticated, uh, you know, apolitical person. Um, and the emerging one um, around a a quote-unquote ratchet identity, where uh, we used to call it like a ghetto or, or, you know, sort of a combination of many of these other aspects um, or these other stereotypes um, all in one. And so, you know, I think when you are living in a space that just narrowly defines your identity and doesn't provide much opportunity for you to speak out against that, and when you do, you're, you're seen as Um, you know, being combative or confrontational in a way that's not celebrated, um, it's really hard to speak out. It's really hard to embrace your own power. And so girls, um, in many cases, end up having, you know, these kinds of confrontations in the place where they spend most of their time, in schools, in places where they are... um, learning about new ideas and trying to apply them to themselves, but having a difficult time navigating that in many places, particularly in those places that have um, zero tolerance responses to, um, you know, their negative behaviors or that have very limited abilities or, or structures in place to bring girls into uh, the the really um, concrete, creative, and um, rigorous discussions about, how they come uh, to be learners in these spaces and how they represent that in their actions and in their work.
1: You write that most legal and educational reform advocates Recognize Brown versus Board of Education The 1954 Supreme Court decision As the landmark case that ended legal segregation in our society However, while de jure segregation That is the right to segregate May have ended in many ways with the Brown decision Affecting public policy well beyond the issue of education It did not address the ways in which enduring xenophobia Tribalism and the intersections between race and poverty Would sustain de facto segregation Expanded residential racial isolation that by extension kept schools highly segregated. The decision also did not anticipate future proxies for race, including class and criminal conviction history, that would later facilitate a resegregation of several public learning spaces that had in fact managed notable progress on integration. How much does Brown versus the Board of Education Undermine our ability to reform education and end any chance of racial segregation? Do we assume there is no problem anymore because it has been addressed with Brown versus Board of Education?
2: Um, that's an interesting framework because I think, um, you know, we are in general living in a space uh, where I think while most uh, folks who are paying attention understand that we are, we are not living in a post racial society. Um, there is still a rhetoric around our um, description of opportunity that fails to acknowledge what you just read, right the, the what I'm saying in the book about um, the you know de jure and de facto differences that inform um, opportunity in in this country and how it's become entrenched in a more implicit uh, uh, and um, structural way as opposed to. A legal way. So, in many ways, I think you are correct um, that because we've had significant um, cases, legal cases that challenged the constitutionality of of segregation, of discrimination, um, and that you know have provided the grounds for there to be other legal battles to protect vulnerable populations against discrimination, that doesn't necessarily translate to. Um, a lived experience with intersections between race um, or racism, sexism, um, and and other you know other isms <laughs> that impact um, opportunity. Um, I do, however, think that it's really important for us to explore um, in in the context of the the legal structures um, and outside of the context of the legal structures, the ways in which we prime um, ourselves and we prime our girls for victimization. And one of the issues that I think is most important in understanding school pushout for black girls and some of their unique vulnerabilities is understanding the risk of victimization and trauma and the role of trauma in uh, or being present in the lives of girls who are at greatest risk of being pushed out. And that's an issue that's not really discussed uh, rigorously when we talk about these common structures, right? When we talk about um, the the legal spaces to defend um, girls' rights to, you know, engage or go to schools, um, we have to understand all of these other components. The one thing that you know is important, I think, for us to acknowledge is that Brown versus Board of Education was really about improving the quality of education for our children and. Um, the fight was to get to a quality education, not just the right to go to the same school, (laughs) right? And so what we've got to really think about is while, you know, Brown versus Board of Education provides us an opportunity to say you can't uh, deny children from having the same opportunities um, in school, what we have to look at is the way in which the local nature of education then informs who goes to what schools, and even if you're in the same schools, who's in which classroom, right? What are the funding structures for these schools that inform resources that, and, and access to opportunity? And what are, again, our understandings about the kids who attend these schools now that inform our disciplinary continuum that has a tremendous impact on who stays in school and who does not? So, there, you know, for me, and I think for all of us, you know, cases like Brown versus Board of Education or many of the ways in which we um, process our legal decision-making is really just one aspect of a very complex, uh, multifaceted issue that impacts who stays in school and who has access to a quality education and who does not.
1: That leads to the push-out, as in the title of your book, Push Out the Criminalization of Black Girls in Schools. We were speaking with social justice scholar Dr. Monique W. Morrison. What pushes that uh, and what leads to that out is this exclusionary discipline that they uh, seem to lean on and always use when it comes to disciplining a student at school, that is threatening or kicking them out of school. You write, too many black girls are being criminalized and physically and mentally harmed by beliefs, policies, and actions that degrade and marginalize both their learning and their humanity, leading to conditions that push them out of schools and render them vulnerable to even more harm. What can being pushed out of school, because people should consider this if there's somebody who's out there who endorses this kind of exclusionary discipline, what can being pushed out of school mean to a black girl's future?
2: Well, here's what's important to understand, is that for girls, particularly black girls, but for girls, education is a critical protective factor against contact with the juvenile and criminal legal system. So when girls are pushed out of school, they are uniquely vulnerable to contact or or to participation in underground economies that render them vulnerable to contact with the criminal legal system. Girls who are pushed out of school are uniquely vulnerable to engaging in relationships that produce physical and sexual victimization. They're more likely to be in problematic intimate partner relationships and to experience violence and victimization in these relationships. They are more likely to uh, live in poverty uh, than, you know, their white counterparts. Um, and so I think it's really important for us to think about when we're pushing out a girl, when we're pushing out a black girl, what we're essentially doing is uh, participating in the throwaway of her life. And uh, that to me, as a you know, member of the concerned adult community, is unacceptable. I don't think there are any throwaway children. I do think that there are corrective actions and there are ways in which we can come um, into communities to embrace and restructure our ways of responding to some of these issues. Because often, again, black girls are uniquely impacted by this for um, incidents and for actions that in some cases are serious actions that require an intentional um, and serious intervention. But sometimes it's really just about how she came to school with her hairstyles, how she came to school with her shoes, you know, which, which shoes she was wearing or what shorts she was wearing or whether... The fact that she wore a hat in school constituted, you know, her being perceived as willfully defiant and pushed out of school. So, you know, again, we tend to go to the most um, intense cases around the physical violence, but it's often not about physical violence for these girls. It's about whether she used profanity. It's about, um, you know, other, other issues that absolutely should, um, you know, not involve exclusionary discipline. If we're really talking about keeping our girls in schools. And the one thing I want to say is that it's not like this everywhere. So, you know, I went to schools that were um, that allowed children to uh, make mistakes and rejoin community that allowed, uh, you know, girls to wear, um, you know, at least, you know, facially in terms of policy, what they needed to wear to go to school because it was about the learning. It wasn't about, um, you know, punishing a girl for how she wants to wear her shorts. Um, And so I think it's really important to think about these issues and how we come to uh, rely on punishment as a strategy for engaging young people in this construction of safety. I don't believe that you can implement safety by having these policies. I do believe that you can co-construct safety with the affected population. So with the group of girls, with the group of boys that you are seeking to make safe That process has to be constructed with them. This is a collective process, um, and that's something that many of our schools are missing.
1: We have been speaking with Dr. Monique W. Morris. She is author of Push Out, the Criminalization of Black Girls in Schools. She is a social justice scholar and co-founder and president of the National Black Women's Justice Institute. You can find out more about the institute at nbwji.org. And you can get the book by going directly to our website, thisishell.com, and clicking on the title. And it takes you directly to the publisher's page. Monique, we have one last question for you. And as we do with all of our guests, it's the question from Hell the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. our audience might hate the response. You write about the historic historical value of education within the African-American community. You write for many enslaved black women learning to read represented a reclamation of human dignity and provided an opportunity to ground their challenges to the institution in scholarship, literature, and biblical scripture. Many a black woman's commitment to education was so strong that she risked incarceration or other penalties. Just just to attain it. Black women understood the reward. Having an education would make it much harder for black people to be regulated to servitude and poverty. Those black women who become educators and generally learned people learned people were able to renegotiate power relationships that had previously held them in bondage and recast themselves as directors of their own destinies. Education provided an alternative, and it was tangible. So why when there are political speeches about poverty, even from President Obama, why is there talk of a need for valuing an education? Isn't that education valued, but those in poverty are not given access to that education by a punitive, policed, disciplinary system that dominates today's education?
2: Um, I, I think you, in many ways, with the excerpt that you read... Um, capture my sentiment with regard to that question. Um, Education, you know, Malcolm X once said, education is the passport to the future for tomorrow belongs to those who prepare for it today. And that's one of my favorite quotes, because I think it has always been true that education has been a passport to success for people of African descent in this country, because the learned person, the person who is interrogating these issues, is uniquely engaging in the process of constructing their own identity and participating in this democracy in a way that allows for there to be um, an exchange, whether we like it or not, an exchange that is critical for the advancement of our collective identity as, you know, in in this country together. Um, The poverty and the intersections, you know, with the other issues and and toxins, as we were calling them earlier, Play a distinct role in how we concentrate and marginalize particular communities, particular populations within those communities, and how we construct um, our own understanding about risk, about threat, about um, who is worthy of engaging and participating in this process, in this democracy, and who is ultimately going to be um, leading this our communities and and our institutions in ways that are meaningful. So education to me represents a critical protective factor, which is why I centered it in this discussion about the criminalization of black girls. I could have also talked about um, medical institutions. I could have also talked about um, social services. I could have talked about a number of other institutions, but education is one that we universally share and that we have an ability to construct and, and center in a way that is meaningful to ultimately engage in a practice, not just an ideology or um, a professed belief, but a practice of equal opportunity.
1: Monique, it has been a true pleasure having you on This Is Hell this week. This has been an amazing conversation, and I think that we only skim the surface of your book as we always do, (laughs) and that's why our listeners should go out and get your book, Push Out, The Criminalization of Black Girls in Schools. You can get it by going to thisishell.com and clicking on the title of the book. Our guest this morning has been Dr. Monique W. Morris. I truly appreciate you being on the show. This is really fantastic stuff, and do not be surprised if I annoy you in email. (laughs) to get you back on the show. I really, really appreciate this conversation. It's been very enlightening, and thank you very much.
2: Thank you so much.
1: All right, take care, Monique.
2: Thanks, bye-bye.
0: Oh, we don't need all that. Hey, this is Dan Hill, board operator Dan. That was Dr. Monique Morris speaking with Chuck in 2016 about how misogyny, racism, and classism, among other biases... All conspire to sort of make the subjectivity of black girls less legible to authority figures with disastrous outcomes. It was a good interview. I hope you enjoyed it. All right, let's see what's going on with this question from hell. This week's question from hell. What should people be thanking you for this year? Kind of a reversal. Fabio L. responds, dealing with two questions from hell this week. Ah, Referencing the sort of stutter step we had at the advent of the week. There's some crossed wires, and two different questions from hell were posted. A sharp of Fabio to point out, and to hold us sec- to account for. I would expect nothing less from our listenership. Uh, that's it for Facebook over Twitter way. Dark G. responds, Leaving the country and sparing everyone in the black pill le- and sparing everyone the black pill lessons I learned from programs like This Is Hell that I simply cannot refrain from trotting out at family functions. That's a fun one. And there are no other responses. Therefore, Dark G, you are the winner of this week's Question from Hell contest. If you were never somebody before, you may be someone now. Please reach out via Twitter DM which was the medium of your response, to claim your major award. All right, that about wraps it up for this week's Limbo edition of This Is Hell. It sounds as though Chuck will be in next week. So do tune in for our regularly scheduled programming. I will resume my role as board operator Dan and speak much less. Until then...